Welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is Lloyd Pye. Lloyd is a researcher and author known for his work with the Star Child Skull and Intervention Theory. Lloyd began writing in 1975, then became a screenwriter in Hollywood in the 1980s. In 1995, he found his passion writing non-fiction in alternative knowledge. Alternative knowledge is information rooted in mainstream science, but in areas normally kept from public discussion because they cast doubt on the currently accepted paradigms and dogmas of the mainstream. Lloyd Pye, you're extremely welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? I'm fine, and it's great to be here, John. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you're more than welcome, Lloyd. And indeed, it's my great privilege to have you on the show, especially so early into things. It's only episode six, and I've been a follower of your work for quite some time. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. But for those listening who might not be familiar with your work, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, why it is that you do what you do, and what it is you do, of course? Well, I've, uh, I've been working in the field of alternative knowledge for about 40 years now, and I, my interest for many of those years was hominoids, which is Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, things like that, which led me to an alternative view of human origins, how we came, how humans came to be on Earth. I don't believe that it's uh, Darwinian evolution, and I don't believe it's creationism. I think it's, it's intervention. I call it intervention theory, and that's what I talk about. But in 1998, a couple contacted me asking me if I would come by El Paso, Texas. They had something they wanted to show to me. And I wasn't going to be there until February of 99, so we're talking about 13 years ago. I dropped by. They showed me two skulls in a cardboard box, and they said, what do you think? And I was just overwhelmed by one of them. Well, both of them, really, but certainly one of them. And I thought it was a very highly unusual human deformity of some kind. Okay. And they, they explained to me that they didn't think it was a human deformity. They thought it might well be the skull of a gray alien. And I said, well, you know, the odds of that are like us finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I don't think that's the case, but I'm certainly uh, willing to admit that it's a very unusual skull. And I would be interested to find out exactly what set of deformities would lead to this kind of a look. And so on that meeting in February of 99, here I am talking to you 13 years later, after what has become a real huge chunk out of my whole life, working to figure out and determine what that, that skull was. It, that skull came to be known as the Star Child Skull, and now it's, of course, very well known, and we've had uh, managed to get a lot of scientific testing done on it much of it physical about the physical differences and other parts of it just to do with the DNA. And so with the DNA recently, we've had some very good successes with partial recoveries, partial, um, partial evidence, and now we're to the point where we're very, very confident that we, when we can afford the very large expense of having the entire genome um, sequenced we will be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that the star child was an alien. And, and that's a historic moment for all humankind, and that is where we are. We are right at the precipice of being able to do that. The only thing now separating us from it is the money that it takes to sequence that genome. And in, in those terms, a lot of people hear the you know, they hear that it only costs like $10,000 to sequence a person's entire genome, whereas a couple of years ago, three years ago, it cost a million. Yeah. That's, that's true. But the new, the new sequencing machines work best and most efficiently with live DNA. Like if they took the DNA from you or from me or for any of the listeners, then it would be an easy thing to do because all of the strings of the DNA are together as they should be. Imagine, imagine a big wad of Christmas lights. This is the analogy that I like to use. Okay. Imagine a, a big wad of Christmas lights. And that you put that into these new machines, and they can unravel those strings just beautifully. Like you would have to do it by hand, and it takes you an hour before you can even start fixing your Christmas tree. Exactly. Because yeah. it's so jumbled from the last time. Well, these machines can unjumble and straighten them out and read them, boom, 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 fairly quickly now. But with the star child's DNA and any DNA that's been dead for a considerable length of time, mm -hmm. and the star child has been dead for 900 years, carbon-14 tells us that it's been dead for 900 years, um, plus or minus 40 years. So that being the case, it, when it's been that desiccated and, and contaminated by the bacteria of death and all that, you have the equivalent of putting those Christmas lights through a wood chipper and taking the pieces that go flying out the other end of the wood chipper and then reassembling those into the correct, you know, the correct Christmas lights. It's going to be a much, much harder job. And that's what we're up against with the Star Child. Now, the good news is it can be done. The bad news is it takes a lot of time and manpower and machine power. And so it costs in the low millions of dollars to do something like this. It used to be in the high millions of dollars. So right. we're in, you know, we're in good shape, but we still require the money to do it. So basically, Lloyd, 1998, somebody comes with a skull. You have a look at the skull and you, by one method or another, decide that this is not a normal, say, human skull or a, a hominoid with a deformity. This has to be of alien origin. And you're now at the stage or you can come on Alchemy Radio today and you can say to me, we are literally just one step away from beyond any shadow of a doubt, proving scientifically 100% that this is an alien skull. That's exactly correct. We have now enough partial proof in enough areas of DNA to be absolutely convinced that it can't, it can't go any other way, really. The, the answer can't be anything other than when we have the whole genome, we will be able to show that it is absolutely not only not human, but very far away from human, much farther away from human than, say, Neanderthal or the new prehuman Denisovans. Uh, it'll be much further away than that. It could be, genetically speaking, the star child could be as far from a human as not a chimp, not a gorilla, not a Neanderthal, not a Denisovan but as a mouse or a rat or a cat or a dog, somewhere in that area. Incredible. And that's a discovery that has the potential or is beyond potential at this stage. But 
feasibly will now change the whole understanding of human history. That's right. And not not just human history, but the human future. <laughs> we we become members of a galactic or intergalactic community, and that's a big step forward. There've been there've been just a few major gigantic steps forward for humanity that that we we acknowledge and that we're aware of. The first one would have been Copernicus in the 1500s, moving the Earth from the center of everything to its position as one of the planets orbiting uh, a nondescript sun and a, you know, yep. an ordinary, what we know now, an ordinary galaxy. Um, the other, another one was the Wright brothers taking all of us onto their shoulders and moving us into the air so that we could fly and shrink the world by a dramatic uh, scale, to, to a dramatic scale from what it had been when you went from place to place on covered wagons or horse-drawn wagons or the early automobiles to suddenly you're in the air and you're, you know, it's just an amazing event. And then the, the next one would have been the landing on the moon. And that moved humanity into space, not just into air, but into space. And now we, with the Star Child Skull, will be able to move all of humanity into being part of a galactic or intergalactic community. And there will be a, a table, you know, at the galactic round table, there will be a chair with our name on it waiting for us to grow up enough to take our seat. And, and we, of course, are a, a very flawed species right now, and we have a lot of, of growing and a lot of, of, um, of connecting to do with those others that are out there. But it has to start somewhere. There has to be a first step that everyone has to acknowledge. We can't keep our heads buried in the sand anymore. I mean, we all know they're out there. We, you know, a, uh, UFOs, uh, hundreds and hundreds of UFO sightings mm -hmm. and encounters. And, you know, there, there's incredible amounts of evidence that those who don't want to listen to it, who don't want this to be the case, can ignore. And that, so they do. Yeah. But there, there is evidence that can't be ignored. And that evidence, of all the evidence you can throw out there, is DNA. Because DNA is the math of biology. You really can't argue with it. It's like 2 plus 2 equals 4. You can't really argue with that. There is no argument to make. You have to accept it. Well, DNA provides the kind of results, the kind of answers that are mathematical formulas, the equivalent of math formulas. You just can't argue with it. That's why people get out of jail due to DNA evidence and they go in jail due to DNA evidence and there's just no arguing. That is, is kind of the way we are with, well, that is the way we are with the star child. We are very, very, very lucky that we have a skull with bone that, that is not, for as badly as it's degraded over 900 years, it spent those 900 years in the, the great, great majority of them in a mine tunnel, which is like a climate control storage locker. Okay. So it's very well preserved, and so and we are able to get very good results from it. So Lloyd, how was the Starchild Skull discovered, and what immediately stuck out for you? I mean, we'll we'll stick up pictures online of what it looks like, but can you describe it to any of the listeners who might not be uh, in front of a computer who can check it out right now? What was it that initially attracted you to this skull of the two you were presented with? 
Well, <clears throat> the first thing was that as you hold it in your hand, it weighs about half what a normal human skull. And, and keep in mind, you, well, your first question, let's answer, let's deal with that. How was it found? It was found in Mexico about 1930 by a young girl who was a teenager at the time, Mexican heritage, uh, living in El Paso, Texas. And her family brought her and her siblings to visit their home village when she was about 13, 14, 15. She couldn't remember as a as a much uh, much more aged adult, but somewhere along in there, and and when the family got to the village, they were told the kids were told, don't go in the mine tunnels or the or the um, caves around here. It, it's kind of high, dry desert area around the Copper Canyon, so there you know can be a degree of danger there, and we just don't do it. It's taboo. Don't do it. So you know a teenager at that that time. You know, any teenager, they're told not to do something. Well, they're going to check it out if they can. So she snuck away from the village and did some exploring. And she found a mine tunnel way away from the village. And in it, she found a human skeleton lying on its back. And beside it was a mound of dirt with what she called a misshapen hand sticking out, wrapped around the upper arm bone of the human skeleton lying on the dirt. She ended up recovering both skulls and keeping them her whole life as souvenirs. She kept them in a cardboard box in her um, garage at, in El Paso. And when she was dying in the early 90s, she passed that those skulls on to some friends of hers. You know how you find a home for some pets. They were very special to her. She passed them on. Those people kept them for five years, and they passed them on to another couple, Ray and Melanie Young, who are still the owners. And Melanie happened to be a neonatal nurse for about 15 years prior to this. Mm -hmm. And so her experience told her immediately that it wasn't uh, any kind of human deformity she was aware of, and she knew a lot about deformity. But more importantly, she noticed what I noticed right away. As you hold it in your hand, it's much lighter than it ought to be. It weighs half to less than half of, of a normal human skull. So it's like a dried gourd compared to a skull. Also, the bone itself is very, very thin, much thinner, half to less to a third of normal human bone. And all these pictures are indeed available on the internet or, or in the ebook or in videos. And so you can see these things if you, if you make an effort. Um, what struck me immediately on first look out of the box was the eye sockets because my father had been an optometrist for about 45 years and so I was pretty keenly aware of eyes and I knew what not only human eye sockets were supposed to look like but hominoid eye sockets because as I said earlier that was my field and my specialty area of study and one of the key differences between humans and hominoids is the vast difference in their eye sockets. Right. So I, I was wired up on eye sockets and as soon as I saw the star child I just said whoa man those are some very unusual eye sockets and very shallow not shaped the same as humans just different in every way they can be different, literally. The foramens were in a different place, the, the holes where the, the optic nerves and the muscles and nerves that come in that, that uh, move the eye, everything different, everything rearranged, but very symmetrical. And it didn't, and just the front of the face, you know, all humans have brow ridges, and we all have brow ridges. To one degree or another, we all have brow ridges. Mm. 
That's a human, that's a primate trademark. Primates have them much bigger than ours. But you know, those little lumps of bones over our eye sockets, we all, star child doesn't have any of that. It's, it's like a little thin ridge of, of bone holding that eye in. And it's not an, it can't be an eye like ours because it just wouldn't, it wouldn't hold in the same way. You have to have the majority of our eyeball behind, up in the eye socket, or very sharp contacts like let's say you're in a car you have an accident the airbag hits you your eyes would be like the old cartoon eyes where the the animal gets hit and its eyes stay in one place and long strings connect it back into the heads and then their eyes snap back into their heads yeah would wouldn't be like that with us it would be just the eyes would be out of our heads if we didn't have the design we have well the star child has a design that wouldn't let the eye stay firmly in the head on being hit that's a very dangerous design. So obviously, it's a different kind of eye. It can't have an eye like we have. So um, that caught me right there. Wow, what a strange looking, you know, eye socket. And then when you pick it up and you you look at the top of the head, there's a crease in the back rear of the skull. People who see gray aliens report that they have kind of a crease in the top of their head between two, you know, two bulging spheres of their head. Well, sure enough, there's that crease. Um, so that was that caught my eye. The the extreme flatness of the rear of the whole whole rear of the head area, very very unlike a human, but yet you could see instantly that it wasn't artificially created because the convolutions, the natural convolutions of the bone, were still there. So it's a completely different design than the rear of a human head but still wasn't artificially flattened. That impressed me. Also, everyone that has a head on a neck, uh, you know, that has a head sitting on a neck, has a thing called an inion, which is the knot at the lower rear part of your head where your neck attaches. Now, if everybody listening to my voice now, just takes a minute, you too, John, go ahead and do it. Reach around to the back middle of your head and reach down to the sort of the lower part and you're going to hit a knot. And that's right where your neck begins to attach. Well, that knot is called an inion. Everybody has a knot on the outside of the skull, and then on the inside, there's another one in there. They're called formally the external occipital protuberance and in the internal occipital protuberance, but shorthand is the inion on, on the outside. The star child doesn't have one of those. And in fact, it not only doesn't have a bump, it isn't even flat there. It has a little concavity where we all have a bump. That's very noticeable. Now, these are just a few of 25 major differences, major physical differences between a star child skull and a normal human skull. Those are some of the most uh, easily visible ones externally. And then you have the more, the more complex ones like the fibers woven through the matrix of the bone to give it added strength the red residue that's left in the cancellous holes, and that Indian thing that I just mentioned to you, those three things, that is not seen in any other species on the planet. So the star child is very, very different from a physical standpoint, but all those 25 major physical differences would not be enough for to convince those people, or not to not to convince them, you're not going to convince them, but to overwhelm those people whose job it is to pretend 
that aliens don't exist and that we are here alone on this planet and that's it, that's all that there is. There are a lot of people out there with a vested interest in maintaining that fantasy, just as there are a lot of us who are very dedicated to getting rid of that fantasy and moving us into the future of whatever our future is going to be mm -hmm. as a species that knows we're just a part of a much larger continuum out there. And presumably, while it wasn't enough at that point, Lloyd, to convince the army of skeptics out there or those with vested interests, it certainly was enough to convince you beyond any reasonable doubt with your knowledge that this wasn't just, say, a genetic anomaly. It was something far more than that. Right. Well, it wasn't just me, though, John. I was taking it to experts regularly, to different kinds of experts, to get them to tell me, how would you get this kind of a look in a deformity? How would that happen? Mm -hmm. And they would all say, you know, God, I, I, in my own area, I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. But, you know, obviously it has to be some kind of deformity, some kind of combination of deformities, but I can't account for my piece of it. So when you get an ear guy telling you he can't account for the ears, you get an eye guy can't account for the eyes, you get a brain guy can't account for the brain, you get, you get all these different problem areas where the, the experts are telling you, well, it's not explainable in terms I understand, but it has to be explainable in prosaic terms because nothing else is allowed. It isn't allowed to say that this is a, an alien, so we just have to say there has to be some kind of prosaic explanation for the skull as a whole, but technically I can't explain my little part of it. And, and that's kind of where it was left for until we were finally able to recover the DNA. Right, so it went on like that for a while, and obviously as you were bringing uh, the skull to these various experts and scientists and whatnot, and they were convinced by this, was there anybody who was willing to kind of put their head out the window, so to speak, and take a risk and say, hang on a minute, apart from privately, of course, but in public, hang on right. a minute. There were, there were a few. There were a few, yes. There were very few, but there were a few. Most of the scientists that I talked to about it who would talk to me? Many of them, maybe most of them, just showed me the door. I mean, as soon as I showed them the skull, well, okay, here's how it started. I started saying, I've got a really unusual skull I'd like you to take a look at. Sure, bring it in. Mm. You walk in the door, and it was like, oh, boom, no, uh-uh. Now, that, that's just a cradle-boarded uh, hydrogen valley. Get that out of here. Just take it away. It's a, There's nothing special about that. Get rid of it. They would know, you know, that it, that it was something they couldn't. To get involved in anything to do with, with uh, the alternative world, if you're in the mainstream, you're risking your career. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows how vicious the peer, um, conservative peers are against those who step out of line and show any kind of creativity in their thinking at all. Not allowed in the world of science. They, they have you believe, they have PR that has you believe that they're right out on the cutting edge of everything and really nothing could be further from the truth. They are cowering well, well behind the front lines waiting for others to make the breakthroughs that they just, their system does not allow them, their peer review system does not allow them to make. So they don't even go there. They don't even try to go there. And, and so every once in a while, uh, well, after enough of those, I got to where I wouldn't tell them. I'd just say, I have a, a skull, uh, a human-like skull that I'd, 
I'd like you to see, but it's it's a little unusual and you know, I want you to I want you to understand that it's probably not anything you've seen before and we're beginning to believe it might be an alien. And then that would save me the trouble of the trip because then they'd say, Oh no, well I'm I'm not gonna talk to you about that. Uh, don't even bother. But then every once in a while one of them would say, you know, really that sounds interesting. I'd I'd like to see that. Well those people turned out to be almost invariably those that had their own business, had their own labs were either retired or close to retired and so they nobody could get to them they weren't risking their careers yeah. and so they were open and able and willing and those and I have a, a couple dozen of those that whose whose names I name in the book that I wrote about at the Starchild Skull um, you know whose names I could use and then I have several that I wrote about in there that also said I'll tell you what I know but you can't use my name Right. And so I just give, I just call them by different colors, Dr. White, Dr. Black, Dr. Green, Dr. Red, you know, like that. Okay, so at this point, Lloyd, you're, you're utterly convinced that the Star Child, Child School is of alien origin, if that's the right term to use. But prior to your discovery or, or the school being brought to you, what was your background like in terms of, say, intervention theory, which we now know that you're um, you're a subscriber to? Uh, were you were you converted because of the Star Child School, or prior to that, did you have an active interest in that, or your own theories? No, I, I had a I had a very active interest and in, and had developed my own theories to the point where I had published a very popular book in the field of alternative knowledge called Everything You Know Is Wrong. And I published that book in ninety late ninety seven, mm-hmm. and it still sells very well because it you know m- most of the information in it just doesn't change over time. Um, but nonetheless, it it uh, everything you know is wrong was where things stood with me in ninety seven, and that's what put me on the map of alternative knowledge. And so that's how my name was given to Ray and Melanie as somebody who knew a lot about skulls and you know because that's what happened they were they were members of MUFON uh, in El Paso El Paso Mutual UFO Network MUFON okay. and they they would go there regularly so that's how they knew about Grays and that's how they knew that the Star Child, that's how Melanie knew that the Star Child skull would fit very neatly in the head of a typical gray alien so when they try, when they took it to the first couple of experts there in El Paso, mainstream experts, brain experts, and the experts said, "No, no, like with me, it's just a cradleboarded hydrocephalic. Take it away. Don't you know? Don't even think about it. Just, just get rid of it. It's nothing. It's well, Melanie knew better. She knew they were lying to her, so she went to Mufon and said, uh, her and Ray, and they said, who, who in the field of alternative knowledge knows anything about skulls?'" And somebody had seen one of my lectures about hominoids not long before, and they said, well, there's this guy named Lloyd Pye from Louisiana, and uh, you might try to get in touch with him. He, he, I saw him, and he really knew a lot about the skulls he was discussing. So that's how it happened. They called me and said, the next time you're in our area, we want to talk to you. And, you know, three or four months later, that, you know, that's when the lightning bolt struck. Amazing. And here we are standing on the precipice of history. But I mean, any listeners, a lot of people will know what creationism is all about. And a lot of people, of course, have heard of Darwin's theory of evolution. Intelligent design is another theory. You're not a subscriber to these views, Lloyd. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're not a subscriber? I know your book, Everything You Know Is Wrong, goes into this. But tell the listeners a little bit about why you have issues with these theories and why your own theories are so different. 
Well, because there, the Darwinian evolution requires that things gradually evolve over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And D- Darwin himself said, if you can't find transitional species in the fossil record, and plenty of them, then my theory has to be wrong. Well, at that point, at the middle 1800s, when Darwin came up with that theory, religion absolutely ruled the roost in terms of what people could and could not believe about human origins. And it was the biblical view of creation that was absolute. Well, Darwin came along and and challenged it in a way that thinking people could see this guy could be right. Um, He had a lot of good examples of microevolution, which is changes in body parts over time. And so Darwin just made the extrapolation that, well, if you, if you have this, this uh, visually recordable change in species adaptability in the body over X thousands of years, when we make that millions of years, then changes in whole bodies should take place and they should be findable. Uh, so he made the extrapolation, and that's what his followers have rallied in around and support is the extrapolation that over millions of years, everything starts from one little thing, one little form of life, and that everything branches out from there. The truth of it is there's no evidence to support that. They've been looking, Darwin supporters have been looking over 150 years now, and it just isn't there. They won't admit it. They say, oh, it's here, it's horses, it's it's this, it's that. Well, all, all, that, all that's lies. All that is just absolute make-believe. It's distortion of the evidence. It's just what they do. They, they play the game. It's a, it's a game where you, you better buckle your chin strap because there's going to be some full-body contact. Uh-huh. And, and that's just the way it is. As far as creationism goes, the bit about you know everything, um, God doing it in six days and all that, strict creationist, no, that's just, everybody knows that's absurd. I mean, and in practical terms, if from a religious standpoint, from a faith standpoint, you can believe what you want, but in reality, that isn't exactly the way it was. Now, could things have been created here? Yes. Does, did every, was everything created here? Not necessarily. Could things be brought here? Yes. So there are these two diametrically opposed positions, the Darwinian, everything evolved here slowly, gradually, and the creationist, everything just sort of magically appeared here in six days, seven days, however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Neither, neither one of those are right. In the middle, which is always the case, when you have two diametrically opposed viewpoints, they're nearly always wrong both of them because if either one of them was absolutely right and provable as true and correct you wouldn't have the other one and the middle ground is where the truth of this is going to lie there is going to be some creation involved and there is going to be some evolution involved but it's going to be evolution at the macro level and it's going to be creation at the level of bringing things to earth and then letting them, as, as they exist, after being created at some point, who knows where. But being, being the result of intervention, what I talk about in my, 
I, I have another book that is, is probably more popular now than Everything You Know is Wrong. It's called Intervention Theory Essentials, and it's an ebook, but yeah. it's an extensively detailed ebook that lots of people get and just love it and say, you know, I've really I've thought about these things my whole life. I've had doubts about this my whole life, and I've never had anybody to put it into terms I could understand and pictures I could see. There are you know, in, in intervention theory essentials in the ebook, it's heavily illustrated so that anybody can understand it. And you come away from that realizing, knowing that the stories you've been told by the Darwinists and by the creationists or indeed not true. What we need to d- determine is who or what brought brought all life here, but not just that, John. It isn't just life you need to concern yourself with. It's the creation of the planet itself. If you look at how Earth and the solar system came to be, it looks as if terraformers were terraforming Earth to suit higher life forms and for that to happen, a planet has to go through certain changes, and they're very dramatic changes. And what you find when you research it is that everything Earth needed to become what we live in now with the atmosphere and the, you know, the ability for us to live here, all of that had to be created. It doesn't just happen. It has to be made to happen and and in when you look at the steps that are required every one of them comes for earth exactly when it's the most opportune time for it to happen it really is as if somebody is watching the earth form over four and a half billion years these are people these are beings whatever they are with no concept of time no concept of beginning no concept of end. Mm. They they see a they see a solar system forming, and you have to assume this has gone on billions of other times in billions of other places because there are billions and billions of galaxies out there with solar systems like ours whirling around in those in those galaxies. So this has to be going on all the time. But in our case, our little solar system was forming. And the terraformers came along and saw that there are going to be X number of planets that are going to come up in the zone of life. Let's get them started. Let's not wait for them to congeal. Let's not wait for them to cool off. Let's not bother waiting. Let's get some prokaryotic bacteria down there into the lava, into the seething lava, and and get started with the process. What's the process? The process is putting oxygen into the atmosphere. Right. What do you What do you need that? And that's what prokaryotic bacteria do. And they are indestructible. They can live in any of the most hellish conditions you can imagine. There are prokaryotic bacteria living there, and and they do that because you have to tie up the loose iron in the atmosphere. And iron seems to be a component of most planets out there. It seems it's very common in the in the universe. It seems iron, but iron is extremely reactive to oxygen. With oxygen, it makes rust. So you had these bacteria come in, and immediately as the planet is a congealing glob of seething lava, you get these bacteria that are in there making making oxygen to tie up the loose iron and so you get the banded iron formations all over the earth all over the earth you can see where they, this was going on 
until all of the loose free iron was tied up and only then, only then could oxygen, free oxygen, begin to move into the atmosphere so that ultimately someday creatures could breathe it and live, you know, be oxygenating and live. I, I can go through the whole book here, but it just for those who are interested in this, I think it's some of the most fascinating material out there. It's called Intervention Theory Essentials. It's an ebook. It'll take you about three hours or so to go through it if you read it straight through. It's fascinating and it covers all of these things, including the origins of life. And, and I guess people are more interested in that. But it's clear to me that there are creatures that have been put on Earth that are native to the planet. And hominoids would be in that category. There is evidence, although it's ignored, but it's still clear and it's there. There is evidence of upright walking primates going back as far as 20 million years to a, a creature known as Morotopithecus. And Morotopithecus lived about 20, 21 million years ago, or at least that's when its fossil was found. So we know it was there then, and it's upright, it's upright walking. And you have actually upright walking fossils all the way down the line from 20 million years ago. But anthropologists, they don't acknowledge that very easily. They will grudgingly, if they have to, acknowledge the work of Dr. Aaron Filler in his book, um, The Upright the Upright Primate, or Upright, upright Primate, Upright Walker. I forget the name of it. Let me check here. I've got it, I've got it right behind me, Aaron Filler. The Upright Ape, The Upright Ape by Dr. Aaron Filler, makes all this clear. But what matters is that if the hominoids, the upright walking primates on planet Earth were the hominoids, Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, and the two kinds that your listeners will not be aware of, but that are dominant in other parts of the, the planet that are not Western-oriented, mm -hmm. those creatures, this is their planet. This, they grew up here. They, you know, they developed here. I don't say evolved, but they developed here. They were brought here, and then they developed here into the different kinds that they have. And so we humans are very, very newcomers to the scene, very much newcomers. And how did we get here? Well, that's where the star child begins to come into it. Okay. Somebody put us here. Who put us here, Lloyd? Well, that I, I am a follower of a man named Zechariah Sitchin, yep. who died in late 210, and I really believe that lacking any other evidence that we can point to, I go along with him in pointing to the stone tablets that were left behind by the Sumerians about 5,000 to 4,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago. Okay, tell us and, about those. In, in those tablets, the Sumerians, what we acknowledge as the first culture, talk about a race of beings from another planet in our solar system, but not like the circular orbiting planets. It's a long elliptical orbit, orbiting planet that had been captured by the sun at a distant point in the past, and that planet is called Nibiru. And on, those planet, on, on the planet Nibiru are people known as Anunnaki. And they came to Earth for a long period of time, one of the main reasons being to mine gold. And while here, they needed to make Earth more like their home, make, make life more comfortable for them. So, 
Nibiru and the Anunnaki, in a sense, so could they possibly created a number of what we call the manifest. Okay. So what happened next? Well, um, it, you could you repeat what you just said? I heard in a sense, and then I had a, I have a sign here, internet connect problem for a few seconds. So you you were saying in a sense something, and I did not hear the rest of that. Yeah, in a sense, the the Anunnaki, as you describe them, and as Zacharias Sitchin describes them, they're almost like the gods that have been spoken about from ancient times, in a sense. Exactly. That is exactly right. The Anunnaki were the gods with a small g that the earliest humans talked about, particularly the Sumerians. And these Anunnaki, I believe, are, are basically us, a much superior form of humans. Uh, they, they needed to make, a, they wanted to make a slave and a servant to serve to to serve their needs while they were here at the same time they were creating the domesticated plants and the domesticated animals to the the quote used in one of the tablets is to quote give the gods their ease in other words to make life easier on us we're going to create these things mm -hmm. and one of which was the slave and the servant which is us and out of that process to, in order to do that, they wanted a slave that they could themselves could be compatible with. According to the tablets, only about 600 of them ever were here at any one time, maximum of 600. And most of those, the vast majority of those, were men, males. And so, you know, on uh, Nibiru, in doing that, they're creating a hardship duty for these men you got to get them some women just like in the military yeah. you know you've got to get them some partners or they're going to blow a gasket yeah so um they they decided not just to create minors but to create slaves and servants to serve their needs so they needed females that were compatible with the anunnaki males so that they had to use the vast majority of their genome now i've been saying this since everything you know is wrong it made sense to me if you listen to what the Sumerians wrote and if you look at how we are physiologically, it made sense to me that you, you could have only, they could have only taken a very small bit of the creatures of Earth to put that, that into the gene code. Clearly they said they did. They, they said we have to bind our, our code onto the creature of Earth and, and the reason turns out, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but they had to do it, but as I would give lectures, I would say, but they couldn't have put very much of the creatures of Earth into us because we don't look anything like the creatures of Earth. Right. We are, the most we could have is 5 to 10%, and I would say that again and again. 5 to 10% is the maximum ge genetics we could have gotten from the creatures of Earth. And and why they you know why they had to do it? I said I guess so that they would be better adapted, so the slave and the servant would be better adapted to this planet than they were, and and so but we're like ninety ninety five percent Anunnaki. We've got their skin, their brains, their hair body body hair patterns, everything. We're them. 
because we're not like anything on, uh, that was on earth before us. There is everything that was before, and then boom, there's us. This, this is the kind of lecture that I was giving back when that guy saw me and said to, to Ray and Melanie, you, you need to talk to this guy. That Those early lectures are still, I get emails about them all the time. People are still discovering them regularly, the, these things that we're talking about. But now, now in like the last year, this is what's so cool. You know, like within the last year, we have found out that sure enough, humans carry in the range anywhere from 2 to 4% or maybe a little more, but it looks like 2 to 4% of Neanderthal, and, and another thing that I, was, I would always say is that the Neanderthal was the creature of Earth that they used. It had to be Neanderthal, nothing else makes sense, based on what I know about all the different hominoid types. It has to be Neanderthal. Okay. So sure enough, we find out that we have between 2 and 4% of, of Neanderthal DNA if you, in all the bodies of all non-Africans, non, the Africans being the first creatures that the Anunnaki created. The oldest of us by far come from Southern Africa. So it all makes sense. So what do you think that 2 to 4% is? It, it's in our bodily defense mechanisms against the microbes of Earth. In other words, it made the slave and the servant exactly what I'd said, more, more compatible with Earth's environs, made it easier for them to live safely on Earth than the Anunnaki could live safely on Earth. The Anunnaki didn't have those genes built up, developed over millions of years against the various pathogens on Earth. So it all worked out. It's worked out very well for me, this recent discovery about how much Neanderthal DNA we carry in our bodies and where that, that 2 to 4% is located. It, you know, it's, it's in our immune system. That's where the vast majority of it is, in our immune system. Now, that tells you right away, whoa, this doesn't sound natural. This sounds like genetic engineering. Mm. And, and that is how we got here. We are a genetically engineered species. And more important than that, we're not well put together. We have over 4,000 genetic disorders and counting. New ones are discovered fairly regularly. We, we are built very poorly. Why? Because when the Anunnaki made the decision to build us, there was a huge debate among them about whether it was morally acceptable to do it. Because to create a new sentient being, it's okay to create domesticated plants and domesticated animals for service to the gods. Yeah. It's not it's a much bigger deal to create a new form of sentient being like they were, but but very much less than they were. They were creating a if you want to call them the Anunnaki gods with a small g, they were going to create some very seriously substandard gods and they knew it. So it, there's a moral question. If we had to make a decision, well, if we're going to make a new kind of human, but we're going to have to make them very, very substandard because we don't really know what we're doing or we don't want them to be able to challenge us in any way, mentally or physically or whatever, what, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to have to make them really, really stupid. 
compared to us. Mm. That that's a that's a heavy moral decision, and so they had to debate it. In the end, it was a very close vote, very close vote, that allowed the Adamu to be created. We we they called us the Adamu. You wonder where Adam comes from in the Bible. Yeah. Why of all the names you could pick, would it be Adam? It's because the gods called the first beings that they created, the the, the um, blacks from South Africa, the Adamu. And so yeah, that became Adam in the in later religious tomes in the Bible. So it's it all ties in very neatly and there are many, many uh, comments in the Old Testament that are just direct lifts right off of the the Sumerian tablets. So there, in my view, there's a lot of evidence that the story that the Sumerians tell of the gods coming here and creating humans to be their slaves and servants in genetically engineering in what on the tablets are called the house of fashioning, the the house of fashioning. That's where things were made. Well, that's to me a genetics lab, and and here we are as a result. And there's plenty of evidence in our body that we're genetically engineered. You don't have to go far, right to the second and third chromosomes, and they're fused together, and yet somehow they function. Now, there's a lot of discussion, and I'm thinking of doing an essay about this to make it clear. In my in my book, um, Intervention Theory Essentials, the ebook. I have a section on this business about the fused chromosomes and what are the the um, ev- what's the evidence? What is the evidence in our genome to show that we've been genetically engineered? And yeah. it, it, like I said, you don't have to look far. There's a second and third, the fusion of the second and third chromosomes, but there are other places as well and other things that show very clearly that we have been genetically engineered, manipulated to be the way that we are. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what else to tell you about that, except that if you're interested in that, get the book, uh, either Everything You Know Is Wrong or the ebook, <clears throat> uh, uh, Intervention Theory Essentials, and, and you'll, you'll have answers to these questions and discussions of this, plus much, much more. There's just so much to this topic. As you can tell, I start just wandering down mental paths and it's hard to pull me back to reality. Well, it's fascinating, Lloyd, because even as you speak, there are a number of things that spring to mind. One is, for example, some of the well-known quotes from the Bible, for example, Genesis, um, God created man in his image. It ties in with that statement. Um, People talk and scientists talk about junk DNA, about how we only use a certain amount of our DNA and they don't know what all the rest of it does. I mean, let's face it, what you're speaking about makes complete sense in terms of these so-called scientific anomalies and religious anomalies and all this kind of thing. It's almost like the glue that binds all these mysteries together for me as I'm standing here listening to you now. Absolutely. It it really is that. And I would like to point out one thing you said there early on um, about the one of the quotes in the Bible. It doesn't say you what you said is what people tend to think in their mind. Let me make man in my own image. That isn't what the Bible or any of those texts say. Mm -hmm. Let us make man in our image. That's one of several plural God, the God speaking of himself as a plural in the Bible. Well, why, if he's a God, would he speak in the plural? There you go. There's a big difference. 
but they do. It's a huge difference. It, it, why, why the redactors? I mean, I think everybody understands that the Bible as we have it, both Old Testament and New Testament, are fusions of many what are called Gospels. Yeah. And there is no such book as a Bible where somebody sat down and wrote it until the Gospels were pulled together and fused into a unit that has come to be known as the Bible and then has later been uh, polished by, um, I think it was Francis Bacon, is, is rumored to be the guy that did it, to make the King James edition that you know everybody references of the Bible. But the, the, the early forms of it were just fusions of those Gospels and why the original redactors did not take out all the references to plural gods, I don't know. But there they sit, and there have always been an embarrassment to strict, strict interpreters of the Bible as literally the Word of God are literally inspired by God because it's just riddled, riddled with mistakes and confusions and conflicting statements. Here it's tr one is true, there another is true, and one is, which one do you believe? And, you know, why they didn't do a better job of, of blending those Gospels together, nobody knows. You would think they would have had the intelligence to do it, but that for whatever reason they didn't so we're left with those with those confusions and and I, as you said that makes it makes it more obvious that the sumerian tablets are the glue that holds it all together because when the bible was being written there is a terminology that became common it is written in stone meaning it is written in stone and that's just the way it is and there's nothing you can say about it well, people never stop to ask themselves, well, what is written in stone? Everybody thinks the Ten Commandments yeah. because that's the image we all have from the Charlton Heston movie that we all see when we're kids. Mm -hmm. Written in stone, oh, oh, yeah, written in stone, the Ten Commandments. But in fact, all, all of the Sumerian writings are written on clay tablets. At one time, it was wet clay, and they used a triangle-shaped stylus to make their to write their language, and then they would take those those tablets and they would fire them in a kiln and turn them into stone so that they would be virtually indestructible. So their libraries consisted of these clay tablets that were fired into stone, turned into stone by heat. And, and there you go. You've got another one of those <clears throat> amazing, to me, amazingly uh, prophetic references to the, you know, the written in stone. Yes, what they were writing about and listening to at the time of the Bible being written was the writings coming down to them from the Sumerians written in stone, not the Ten Commandments. They were trying to write their documents their Gospels based on their understanding of history as it was handed down to them, written in stone on the stone clay tablets of the Sumerians. Absolutely fascinating. And much of what you've said there flies directly in the face of, for example, creationism. Um, even the direct translation, God's the plural versus God, that in itself is enough to pick a major hole or blast a major hole wide open in the theory of creationism, certainly for me anyway. And 
then you spoke about Darwinian evolution earlier on and, and some of the problems. And I know that you've listed some of the ways how, for example, humans are not primates. Most of us learn in school, for example, that we're descended from monkeys and primates and that we are essentially apes. And what you're talking about with your theory flies in the face of that. But you, you've uncovered quite a bit of evidence as to why we are not primates and why we're not apes or monkeys. And again, this kind of shoots down some of the, the Darwinian fanboys, if you like. Can you tell us a little bit about, about some of those reasons? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we've already talked about um, the genetic reasons yeah. that <clears throat> it makes it clear in, in my view that we did not evolve on Earth. We were created here and we're very, very recent, within about 200,000 years. Mm -hmm. And, and the, story, the story of that goes this way. Anthropologists were convinced, just convinced, and, and geologists for that matter. <clears throat> excuse me, that um, humans uh, were evolved from our closest genetic relatives, chimps, between five and eight million years ago. And between five and eight million years ago, the, they didn't have any real evidence, <clears throat> excuse me, there was no genetic evidence. I've been talking so long, I'm beginning to get strained my throat a little bit, and I apologize for that. No problem. Um, but um, the, the uh, evidence of five to eight million years ago was just fossil evidence. There was no genetic evidence. So based on the fossil record, they, they just looked at how long it would have taken for the, the radical changes between chimps and humans to evolve in their mindset that it takes millions of years for very gradual changes to take effect as a whole. And they said, okay, between, between five and eight million years ago, there was a common ancestor, and that common ancestor branched into two parts. One part became humans, one part became chimps. Mm -hmm. We are not descended from chimps, they say. We're descended from that common ancestor. <clears throat> so over time geneticists began to look at uh, mitochondrial DNA, our mitochondrial DNA. There are two types of DNA that we have, mitochondrial and nuclear. And so as they began to look at the mitochondrial DNA, they figured out a way to clock back in time for how long humans had existed. And they, those geneticists fully believed what the anthropologists and the archaeologists were telling them and that they were going to find the starting point of human DNA back somewhere between 5 million years ago and 8 million years ago. Hmm. They went into the testing believing what they had been told by the archaeologists and the anthropologists. And if Darwinism was tr true, if evolution was correct, that that would be where you would have to start looking for the first roots of humanity. But when they, when they brought the evidence in and, and looked at it, they didn't believe it, so they did it again and they did it again. And every time they did it with different samples, it came out to be the same. Humans go back no further as a species, as we are today, yep. sitting wherever you are sitting, your relatives go back no more than about 200,000 years. 200,000, not 5 to 8 million, only 200,000. Well, this, came, this evidence came out in the late 1980s. And when it did, scientifically, from a scientific standpoint, the poop hit the fan. 
I mean, the anthropologists and the archaeologists could not accept, could not tolerate 200,000 years because it just cast Darwin out the window. They couldn't have that. Yeah. And yet the Darwin, the uh, geneticists are saying, can't help it, can't help you. It's 200,000, sorry, it's going to be in the range of 200,000. We're very new based on this. They had to find a compromise. They couldn't let Darwin go out the window on this, you know, minor technicality of humans not being any older than 200,000 years. <laughs> so how did they come up with that? How did they solve that? They came up with a, a construct that's called a genetic bottleneck. They say that at some point around 200,000 years ago, something happened that squeezed all of humankind down to just a few breeding couples. And out of that came all of humanity. And because there are some other distinctive markers at about the 70,000 year mark, there's another, they squeeze us through another genetic bottleneck to account for that. So this is like, you know, remember, I don't know how you learned algebra, but one of the ways I learned it was they would give you an answer book with the answer. And when you hit a problem you couldn't solve yourself, you'd go and look at the answer and see if you could solve it working backwards. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's kind of how they, science works today. When they get results they don't like or they can't really deal with, they take that result and they try to work backward to create a theory that will accommodate it within the theories that they already have that are, you know, on record. So, that, that, that's what happened. They created these bottlenecks to account for the fact that Darwin, Darwinian evolution demands that we get our genetic start between five and eight million years ago, and reality is that we're here only about 200,000 years, and guess what? Guess what the Sumerian tablets say about when they, the Anunnaki created the Adamu? About 200,000 years ago. Well, there you go. Right there in the tablets, written 4,000 years ago, is the evidence that not a scientist living or breathing on the planet in 1980 would have accepted. 200,000 years, ridiculous. And when Sitchin, by the way, when Zechariah Sitchin published The Twelfth Planet mm -hmm. in, 19, in 1976, he was saying that, that we were only about 200 to maybe 250,000 years old, but around 200,000 years old. Sitchin was saying, this is what the Anunnaki are telling us in these tablets. He was laughed off the world platform at that. Scientists said, this man is an absolute complete lunatic because everybody knows, everybody knows humans evolved from a common ancestor with apes between five and eight million years ago. And right now to this day, John, to this day, you will hear that being taught in various places around the world, that, that humans somehow descend from a common ancestor, even though we've known since the late 80s that it's absolutely not true, that we are here only about 200,000 years. It's not an answer that's convenient to Darwinism, so it's just kind of left off the table, and it's not dealt with. It's acknowledged, 
fully acknowledged, but it, it's, it's one piece of information that they wish they had not developed. And it just brings me back to the old example, which is trotted out time and time again when anybody discusses something like this. But people believed the world was flat. People believed that categorically, and anybody who denied that was was basically purged or at least ostracized. And I think we're dealing with the same thing, history repeating itself time and time again. And it's the old, I don't know, the old, uh, whether it's a corporate thing or a human thing, I don't know. But there's a tendency, certainly, on the part of us as a species to always fall in with the crowd and to take a sheep mentality or whatever it might be and any kind of dissenting voice is put down often in the fiercest way possible. And I think when you're talking about Zacharias Stitchin and you, we had Galileo going back further and there are thousands and thousands of examples throughout history, we're going to see more and more of this. And I'm sure when you, as you, you described going into various scientists with the Star Child Skull and you were met with this, this brick wall in a lot of cases, people just didn't want to know about it. And I'm sure there was a certain amount of ridicule, correct me if I'm wrong, towards what you were proposing as a theory and as a hypothesis. And that goes on and on. But in your experience, Lloyd, as time progresses, is that becoming less and less? Are people becoming more and more open to alternative theories? Are people becoming a little bit more questioning of the accepted norms? People in general, there are many, many more people open to alternative theories than when I started hardcore about 15, 16 years ago many, many more. Still, the vast majority are, are brainwashed, as you were saying. When we grow up, when we're born and we grow up, we turn into kids, we go to school, we have 12 years, at least here in the States we do, I don't know what you have there, but whatever it is, of brainwashing, of mainstream brainwashing. Yeah. You don't get any alternative views at all unless you go to one of these Christian fundamentalist schools or something like that and then you're going to get brainwashed in a different way exactly. but you're going to be brainwashed you're coming out of it without really the ability to think for yourself all teenagers you ask them do you have the ability to think for yourself well of course I do no they don't they, they, everything is put into them you have to learn to think independently and it's hard to do because you have to overcome the brainwashing and the brainwashing is pervasive. I mean, pervasive. All your teachers, all your authority figures, everybody's telling you the party line. Yeah. Now, what is the party line? How did that get there? It's that sheeple thing you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Let's put ourselves back in the position of the Anunnaki around 200,000 or 300,000 years ago when they decided to do the job. We're going to make ourselves a slave. What are the ideal attributes of a slave relative to us? Okay, we're going to be their gods, and we're going to want them to worship us, and we're going to want them to obey us, and we're going to want them not to hassle us and not to ever attack us or any of that. We want them to be good, obedient slaves. What do we have to put in these guys? What do we have to put in these people? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, the first thing we're going to have to do, boss, is we can't give them the equal of our brain. Because if we do, then a few of them can get together and overpower any one of us. Not a good plan. Let's make them really, really, really stupid compared to us. Now, we think, we think that we're just as smart as you can be. We're actually pond scum relative to them. That's how they've made us. And so for as smart as we think we are, all we're really capable of doing in their eyes is taking instructions, taking a list of instructions here. Go off and do these jobs. 
do them right and come back and tell me when you're done and I'll tell you more things to do. That's what you want your slave to do, right? Yeah. Now, what you also want your slave to do is worship you as a god. Do what, it, what they're told, when they're told, and not think independently. To want to be told what to think. That's the sheeple gene. And so they put that in us, the sheeple gene. And most of us, the vast majority of us, that gene works perfectly. And we come out as sheeple, and we just don't question. We just don't want to question. We're uncomfortable questioning. Those are the ones who, when I would say, here, I got this really weird skull I want to show. No, 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 get it out. I don't want to see it. Those, are the, those have their sheeple gene functioning at a very high level. They're what the Anunnaki wanted when they were creating us. But remember, I said earlier, I think, they were creating us on a schedule, on a tight schedule, as fast as possible, ASAP. So they left the mistakes in. They didn't go back and fix the mistakes. They left the mistakes in. Why did it matter to them if, if one in a hundred of the new slaves was faulty? No. What do they care? Did it matter if one in ten were faulty? No. They don't care. They're making a slave and a servant. So that wasn't their concern, and they left us very, very faulty. Mm. All across the board, over 4,000 genetic disorders, nothing else is even close, except in the domesticated plants and animals, which were also created in a hurry. So they have a lot of problems, too, but, but we got the most, because we're the most complicated. We're the most complex. Yeah. But So the, the, the sheeple gene is in there, but every once in a while, as there is with everything, there are mistakes. There are those of us born without a well-functioning sheeple gene. I'm certainly one of them. I've got a no virtually non-functional sheeple gene in many ways, and you don't, you see, people mm. like you. Yeah. People like us, the people who make up alternative knowledge, who have found their way here, who have wandered along through the Internet or wherever or however they've gotten here, doubting what they, the brainwashing, sitting in church and having questions and, and, and trying to ask your parents or ask somebody and say, oh, don't ask that. Don't, don't even think about that. Don't worry about that. Yeah. You know, something that doesn't make sense in the Bible or something like that or something in school and in college or wherever and you start asking hard questions. They shut you up. They shut you down. They let you know these things are not to be questioned. They're just to be accepted and that's it. That's the sheeple thing. And then there are people, those of us who just look at that and say, uh-uh, I'm not buying that. That No, that doesn't make sense to me. That's a person with a faulty sheeple gene. But the vast majority of us have it, unfortunately, and have it functioning really, really well. And that's why science, the world of science as a whole, is so completely populated with those who have been brainwashed by the system. They never get out of it till they're 30 years old and into their career. Yeah. They never have an opportunity to step back. They, they go deeper and deeper and deeper into the brainwashing. So for me to find a scientist who can still think for themselves, who didn't get weeded out in the, the PhD process. I mean, the PhD process is an exercise in creating masters of groupthink. That's what they want you to do. Exactly. They want you to pick out some little tree in the forest and, and that nobody else has picked out before, and that becomes your tree. You are responsible for that tree. Do not look at any of the other trees. Don't worry about the forest. Leave that to us. 
you learn about your tree. And that's it. And they're just no generalists. And so they come to believe that because they know everything about their tree and what they're telling everybody about their tree is true, that everybody is telling them the truth. But they know, they learn what they're not supposed to tell about the various trees that they learn about. And if they're not supposed to tell it, well, they'll, they'll shade the truth because they, they've learned over the years what's acceptable as mainstream knowledge and what isn't. Hominoids, UFOs, aliens, ghosts, anything to do with that, forbidden, can't talk about that. And so most of them don't. You have to look outside the ranks of scientists to find people who got away from the brainwashing early enough yeah. so that they could develop the ability to think for themselves and in their own way, just like me, find a path toward subjects that interest you that are alternative. And so you become expert in those, as expert in your own way as those people are about their trees. And, and yet, but you, you tend to have, we tend to have a larger overview because we have to deal with more subject areas to establish the, the kind of research that, that those of us who are working at the highest level, that's what we have to do. And I'm certainly not the only one. So do you think, Lloyd, that where those of us, for example, who have the malfunctioning sheeple genes, are we on a bit of a hiding to nothing in your opinion? Or do you think that there is a kind of conscious awakening amongst other people or maybe that gene is ceasing to function or is becoming more and more faulty as we evolve to use that, that, that word again? Yeah, I think the gene is turning off uh, or at least turning down, not necessarily turning off, but turning down. You're getting more and more people who are willing to take a look at, at alternative views because, number one, you have so many television shows that are doing it uh, mm. and, and it causes them to start thinking and wondering and then um, they'll they go on the internet and they'll start looking at different things. Well, those who are the mo who have the poorest functioning sheeple gene, they will make the most serious effort to find out. And those are the ones who become the real fans of alternative knowledge and of things like the Star Child Skull. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of a quote. I think it was Samuel Adams. Um, I could be paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of. It doesn't take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority who keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. And that, that's kind of how personally I feel with regard to alternative knowledge and history, because a lot of what I believe in and a lot of what I explore and research flies in the face of a lot of my friends and contemporaries. And However, I do feel it's worthwhile and I do feel there is a sea change, albeit a slow change, happening. And... I think it's quickening as time goes on and cer certainly in Ireland because Ireland t to my mind would be a very a very asleep country or a, a collective consciousness that is resting all the time uh, more so than a lot of other places uh, but even here I think something is changing it's almost like there's something in the air or whatever and that's what encourages me and drives me forward in my quest to find out more and more about who we are, where we came from and what we're all about and not to just accept what's rammed down our throats through the mainstream media or through schools or whatever it might be and that, that's why I'm so fired up and passionate about it all the time and I, can, I think I can sense the same thing from you Lloyd. I mean, you're, you're, the last 20, 30, 40 years of your life, whatever it might be, are testament to that, I think. Right, I'm fired up. I, I'll, I'd admit it in a minute, not, not a problem. But one, one of the things 
um, I, you know, that that you mentioned that I'd, I'd like to to focus on. You were you were talking about um, how how things are in in Ireland, and and you know, that you feel that a sea change and all that. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you, all of you who are listening to me, there it's been a slow tide coming in, but it is getting ready to be a tidal wave. The Star Child Skull is going to create a tidal wave of people interested in alternative knowledge and wanting to know more. Because once the floodgate is open, and that is what the Star Child is going to do, it's going to open the floodgate, the mental and emotional floodgates in millions of people around the world because it's going to make it no longer deniable that alien life exists. And once it, you have to accept it, it changes the way you, we, all of us have to think about ourselves. And so the first thing is people are going to want to know more. Well, what are the possibilities? If this is true, what's the up, in, the, the up high end possibilities? I want to know more. And, that, and they're going to want to know more. And, and pe- people like me are going to be tasked with providing that information to them. And oh, and speaking of along along this line, and speaking of Ireland, um, I am personally going to be in Europe for all of the month of September. I'm going to be staying with a friend um, in the north of London, and if I, the the pretty much the whole month, I have like five or six dates that are set aside now for for lecture events. But if anybody in Ireland would like to arrange for me to come lecture about these subjects, particularly about the star child, while I'm in Europe for the month of September, please get in touch with me. I'm very easy to contact Lloyd at LloydPie.com, L-L-O-Y-D at L-L-O-Y-D-P-Y-E.com. And if you know anybody that, that sponsors lectures, that you know knows what they're doing and mm-hmm. might have uh, an interest in this kind of subject, and can reach people who are interested in this kind of subject. Yeah, uh, have them have you know get in touch with me, and I'll be happy to tell you the parameters of what I need and what you need to do. But they'll know if they're experienced at it. But I am available. I am available, and would like to fill up as many dates as I can in the thirty-five days that I will be be in Europe. So. Uh, thank you for letting me say that. That's certainly an important message I wanted to get across to your audience. Well, it's really good news and it's exciting news. And we'll certainly put the word out for you, Lloyd, because I think it would be great to see you on these shores. Um, I, have you been here before? I don't think you have. I have been to Ireland once, yes. Uh, but I, not, I did not lecture. I just went on a visit. But I have been to England many times and I've lectured there many times and also about a half a dozen or 10 countries in, uh, in Europe as well. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we can get something sorted out and that we will see you here in the month of September. It would certainly be very exciting for me. Um, Lloyd, before you go, give us your website and the ebook and how people can get their hands on your books and stuff like that and uh, get the plug okay. in there. All right. Well, the my uh, my email addresses, uh, my, excuse me, my website addresses. There are two of them: www.lloydpie. My name l l o y d p y e dot com. Lloydpie dot com, and that does the the um, hominoids and the intervention theory, and that's the focus is there. And the ebook you want to get there is intervention theory essentials. 
Now, the Star Child website is www.starchildproject.com, starchildproject.com, and that has everything Star Child, including the Star Child ebook, which is Star Child Skull Essentials. And, and as far as other books, like Everything You Know Is Wrong, or any of my other book books or novels or anything like that, um, you can go to LloydPie.com or go to, well, a few of them are at Smashwords now. But anyway, it's just those are the main ones for those of you who are wanting information about alternative knowledge. Um, I, I would say the best place to start is the ebooks because they're so heavily illustrated and they're easy to understand. And, and you come away, everybody comes away from it with a very clear uh, basis of, of realizing that what I'm saying about the star child is true and what I'm saying about intervention theory is true. Well, personally, I can absolutely recommend them and we'll get the various addresses and all the details up on the website as well so any of the Alchemy Radio listeners can get in touch and get learning and get, ooh, I suppose, ooh. absorbing knowledge. Can I say one more thing? Of course. And, yeah, one more thing. And there's some nice, very good videos, new videos posted on YouTube, and my channel is Official Lloyd Pie, all together, Official Lloyd Pie on YouTube. And what you'll see there are the, the five at the top. There's a 90-second introduction, and then there's one 17 minutes long. I recommend that one to most people. And then below that, the next three, number three, four, five, those are 10-minute each approximately uh, uh, subject areas that are dealt with in the 17 minute which is a summary and those subject areas are the physical differences in the star child and the human skull the DNA differences in the star child and the human skull and most importantly the criticism that I and the star child skull receive on the internet particularly on Wikipedia but also other skeptical sites you have to remember they have a job in life and that job is to make the mainstream remain supreme and so to do that they have to hack down any um, alternative weed that sprouts and and the star child is one of the most the biggest and most threatening weeds that has sprouted up in a long long time and so there's a lot of negativity about the star child if you go looking for it it's all lies. It's all based on lies. And I talk about it very clearly in the ebook and and on the videos you can see very clearly what the truth is. Now, you can believe, you know, us or you can believe them. <laughs> but we have it in the bag. We have we have the evidence and we're gonna win. So if you choose to believe the negative things that you read about us, well okay, in six months or a year, two years, whatever, you're you'll be eating your ration of crow along with everybody else and that's okay. Everybody needs to do that now and then, just like everybody needs to pick a winner now and then and I, I say we're gonna be a winner and I urge everybody to take a look and see what we have and I think you'll see that we are indeed genuine. Exciting times. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Lloyd Pye, it's been great fun talking to, you today, talking to you today on Alchemy Radio. It's been indeed an honor and a pleasure. And hopefully we'll talk again very, very soon as you continue on your quest to, let's face it, change the face of human history and the future. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate being on. I hope the audience 
could bear with my little my little bout of frogginess there at one point. But uh, it, it's it's been a pleasure, and I hope that uh, you 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 know those who are in Ireland who'd like to see me come over, we can work something out. I hope so. Alchemy Radio.
Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?